When I traveled to India, I experienced culture shock in a way that I hadn't ever before. My first few weeks there, I often felt overwhelmed and emotionally exhausted, which makes sense. When you're immersed in a culture that is so different from your own, there's a lot to process. But what happens when the overwhelming feelings of exploring a new place become too much? Today on Alpaca My Bags, we're going to unpack India Syndrome. We're going to explore whether or not the idea of it is actually real. Here to discuss is Caroline Slaughter. Caroline is a filmmaker and podcaster, and her recent podcast, Astray, caught my interest because in it, she investigates the phenomenon of India Syndrome in depth. Erin, before we get into this, you just got back from the East Coast. Your first flight in 18 months. So give me the scoop. How did it go? The flight or the trip or both? I don't know everything. I'm just so overwhelmed. (laughs) Honestly, it was like the flight, like I was nervous for it, but it's weird. Once I was in the airport and it was happening, I felt like pretty at ease about it. It was definitely strange, like like the airport was fine just because there's so much space and like we flew so early in the morning that it was quite empty. We like sailed through. Did it feel different in there? No, like nothing felt different. It was just everyone was wearing masks. That was it. That was the only difference, really. Like the whole flight experience like was the same except that everyone was masked, which is like reality in all of our life now. So it didn't feel that weird. I think the only part that was weird was just like how packed the flight was. Like I have not been in a space with so many people (laughs) in almost two years. So I mean, we were super careful, Luke and I like double masked. And like, as soon as we were on the plane, we were like, okay, mask is staying on, like not coming off. Um, And it was kind of nice, like, because the East Coast is so careful about COVID, like, of all of Canada, they've definitely had the strictest um, intervention and, like, policies around it. So flying in, like, you have to apply for a a pass. So it's kind of like applying for a visa. You apply for it in advance, and you have to share, like, both your vaccination records. Um, And when you land, they check your pass to admit you. And they gave us, like, take-home COVID kits. So we were able to test ourselves, like, twice after we flew, which was kind of nice because, like, we were able to carry on through our trip knowing, like, okay, nothing happened on the flight. Like, we're good. That's really cool. pretty cool. I wonder if that's going to be, like, a norm everywhere because that seems pretty dang organized, in my opinion. I think it's a great tool, honestly. Like, especially for people who, like, I still get anxious before I go to see my parents, for example. If I was able to take, like, an at-home antigen test before going just to, like, give myself peace of mind, I would love that. And, you know, I was talking to my friend Phil, who's been on the show. He lives in the UK. And when he was visiting this summer, he told me that he finds it really weird that we don't just hand out like these self-testing kits because he was saying all over the UK they hand them out in public to people and if you're going to like an event there will be a stack of them at the door so you can like show up to the event test yourself and like you know in 15 minutes you get the result so so yeah that's the first time I've come across those tests I'm kind of at like a loss for words because it just feels so obvious like why 
why isn't this happening everywhere? I know. The one thought that I had was that maybe in Canada, because you can take an antigen test at a pharmacy, it costs $40. And those those are pretty instant, like 15 minutes. But I was thinking the self-test, maybe the reason that they're not giving them out for free is because they want they don't want people to find a reason not to get vaccinated. Yeah. Because someone could use that as like, oh, instead of getting vaccinated, I'm just going to like take these tests all the time to make sure. I was going to say, or people can fake it. I was thinking a little bit more sinister. Actually, maybe <laughs> mine isn't more sinister. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so tell me about the actual trip, though. So where did you go? What were your highlights? All of that stuff. There's so much to say. First of all, I will just say it felt so amazing to not be in Ontario. I just felt I just felt free. I felt free. <laughs> it's nothing about Ontario. I love Ontario. It just I got to get a little taste of the excitement of being somewhere new and experiencing new things. Not that the East Coast is like that different from Ontario, but I mean, it's different landscapes, different culture. And so it was nice to just like immerse myself in something a bit different like that. So we started in Halifax and we did some day trips around there. So we actually spent a lot of time hanging out with my brother in Halifax. And then we drove four and a half hours to Prince Edward Island, which was so nice. October is a really nice time to be on the island because it's so quiet. Like most of the tourism is throughout the summer. And, you know, in this episode of Global Warming is Coming, the weather was like weirdly good. <laughs> like it was very sunny. I swam in the Atlantic and I was like, this is amazing. But also I'm scared for our climate because <laughs> this is not normal. <laughs> <laughs> and then from PEI, we went to Cape Breton. So we took the ferry across to the Cape and we drove up, up, up um, to the northern part of Cape Breton and stayed in a little cottage there with Luke's family. There was lots of hiking, lots of driving. Cape Breton actually has one of the most famous drives in the world. Did you know that? No, I did it. I thought you were going to tell oh. me more. <laughs> oh, the Cabot Trail. I actually didn't know this either. The Cabot Trail is like one of the most famous drives in the world because it takes you like all, basically you do a big loop of Cape Breton and the landscapes are just incredible. <laughs> well, I was going to say, so Erin, you sent me what you called a very controversial take uh, while you were still away though. So I don't know if things have changed if you were just in your honeymoon phase at the time, just basking in your first vacation in 18 months and you're like, I'm going to move here. But you told me that A, you kind of enjoyed the East Coast a little bit better than the West Coast, which is like in Canada, that's that's a hot take. And also that you maybe want to move there. So like... What's the scoop, Aaron? Tell me. Where's your brain at now? Okay, regarding the hot take, this is the take. I've been to the West Coast many times because it is a beautiful region of Canada. But it doesn't have like the same, you described it as humble culture that you get on the East Coast. Like the West Coast is very like yoga and everyone hikes and everyone loves eating vegan, which nothing wrong with that. It's just like a very specific like type of culture. Yep. Whereas the East Coast has a very like catch a fish and drink beer vibe. Everyone's just chilling. They're just fishing and 
going out for beers. No one cares what they're wearing. It's just, it's kind of hard to pinpoint like what it is about it exactly, but you feel less pressure to like be cool on the East Coast. Whereas I I have found on the West Coast, like you want to fit into this, like, ooh, I'm a hiker, outdoorsy person, like living on the West Coast. Like that's the vibe you get whenever you're there. I just felt like the East Coast had more like legitimate Eastern culture that's related to the history of the the region. There is specific music associated with the region. There's specific food associated with the region. Like there's just so much that is specific to the Atlantic provinces. And the West Coast, I find, doesn't have that same like infusion of like, this is what the West Coast culture is, other than like everyone loves the outdoors. Now listen, if anyone listening to this has a differing opinion from Aaron. She's not taking shots here, but we do want to know what you think, because if you think the West Coast is way better than the East Coast, then please hit us up because we need to settle this once and for all. This is also just such a niche, like Canadian debate. Like, I don't think anyone who's not Canadian would would follow this because like there's a saying in Canada that West Coast is the best coast. And I'm basically arguing against that. And yeah, Luke and I are talking about moving there because we loved it so much. So it's still in the works then. You're still thinking about it seriously. Basically, we were like, when our time in Toronto comes to an end, if we ever decide that we want to leave Toronto, Halifax is where we would go, hands down. Well, there you go. First trip of 18 months. Sounds like it was well, well worth it. I'm so happy for you. Oh, thank you. My turn's next. Yeah, where are you going to go? I don't know, but I just want to get out of here. (laughs) Okay, let's get into this conversation. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you, Erin. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this because... Actually, when I traveled in India, I remember reading some articles here and there about India syndrome. So it was a concept that I had heard about before. And so when I saw your podcast, Astray, came out, I was like instantly interested to know like how it would be treated. And so I'm super excited to dig into it a bit further with you now. But before we talk about India syndrome specifically, I was hoping we could touch on other travel syndromes as well, just to get a sense of like what these are. There are a couple that I've heard talked about pretty commonly. I think the most referenced ones are probably Stendhal syndrome, Paris syndrome, uh, Jerusalem syndrome, and then India syndrome. You talk a bit about them on Astray, so I'm hoping you could explain what each of them are starting with Stendhal. Sure. And I will say, you know, this is a pretty sensitive subject. I want to be as concise as possible. And I'm not a doctor and I'm actually not even a journalist. So when I did Astray, I interviewed journalist Jessica Rabbits about these syndromes. And she had gone to India. She'd sort of experienced that. She did a whole CNN article around it. And so I really trusted her insight on this. But I also did a little bit of my own research, obviously. Actually, a lot of my own research. I went down a rabbit hole reading articles about these syndromes. But this is what I have. So Stendhal syndrome is a psychosomatic condition, which is a physical illness caused by mental distress, 
where a person will faint, hallucinate, experience confusion, or a rapid heartbeat while viewing an exceptional object or piece of artwork or phenomena. So this is the experience when facing aesthetic, man-made beauty, not natural beauty. And the syndrome is unique to Florence, Italy, thus its other name, Florence Syndrome. So in medical news today, they reported that two years ago, a man experienced a heart attack while admiring the famous painting, The Birth of Venus, by Renaissance artist Sandro Botticelli. This was in a gallery in Florence. So presumably the artwork's staggering beauty caused the man's heart attack. Paris syndrome is a little more specific. It's noted primarily in Japanese tourists who are disappointed by their experience in Paris. So when their expectations of Paris's beauty are not met, it leads to the same physical symptoms as Stendhal syndrome, so fainting, hallucinations, confusion, but also includes acute feelings of persecution. The psychologist Hervé Bonhomou, I hope I said that right, was quoted <laughs> as saying, fragile travelers can lose their bearings when the idea they have of the country meets the reality of whatever they discover. So this can provoke crisis. And presumably, and this is pretty interesting, the Japanese embassy in Paris now has a 24-hour hotline for Japanese tourists suffering from the syndrome. I don't know the specifics of why it's the Japanese in Paris, but the I've visited Paris before, and I do see a little bit of that. Uh, I was going <laughs> to I mean, I hate to say that. No, I've said it before on this podcast that, like, Paris disappointed me, which is terrible. But, like, there are just so many tourists. I just – it didn't feel as magical as, like, you expect it will. And there is a little bit of a Paris vibe, which is – and I respect it because there's a, a – they do. They've got some things dialed in. They do. They're better than Americans in a lot of ways. But I think that can sometimes come off as a little bit snobby. And I could see how that could lead to feelings of persecution or just <laughs> being shunned. So the last one is Jerusalem syndrome. And this is the most similar to India syndrome. So this syndrome is related to a feeling of religious significance induced by proximity to the holy city. So it affects some visitors so deeply that they start to believe that they're the Messiah or Jesus. And I don't know if this is true, but I found it interesting. When I was researching this, there was some speculation that the Waco cult leader, David Koresh, was influenced by his trip to Jerusalem and this sort of like, he suffered with, from the syndrome and this sort of spun him out. The Guardian did report on a more probable incident around the disappearance of Oliver McAfee. So he was a 29-year-old British tourist who disappeared in the Nagev Desert in 2017. Uh, a trail of pages torn from the Bible were found along with notes McAfee had made, which led investigators to believe he had deliberately gone into the desert. And there were references in his notes to Jesus going into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. So he disappeared. And it's reported that there are about 50 cases per year of Jerusalem syndrome, and a majority of these cases are of people with an underlying psychiatric illness, such as schizophrenia. But what's more alarming and what sort of gets people all up in arms is how it affects people with no prior mental health issues. So between 1980 and 1993, there were just 42 patients who fit this category. And what they all had in common was they had ultra-religious backgrounds. Okay. And last but not least is India syndrome, which I did a whole podcast sort of looking into and figuring out what I believed from speaking to people who believed in it and people who really didn't. And it's a psychosis said to affect Westerners seeking spiritual enlightenment in India. 
This is, you know, around an exotic locale that's charged with spiritual meaning. And the term was coined by French psychiatrist Regis Adel, who worked at the French consulate in Bombay and saw a total of 200 patients during his 16 months there that were affected by this travel-induced psychosis. I have one question, and I don't know if you can answer it, but is it typically, like, across these syndromes, is it typically foreign visitors that experience these syndromes? That's correct. Yeah, it's it's travel-induced syndrome. One thing that these syndromes have in common with each other is that they all involve being faced with or overwhelmed by something unknown, which is a pretty common experience when you travel. I know from personal experience, I have often felt uh, moments of overwhelmedness in new places. And actually, I see some parallels between the descriptions of these syndromes and culture shock. Do you think that these syndromes have any relation or connection to the experience of culture shock? Yes, I do believe culture shock has a major effect. Almost everyone I interviewed from the West said that visiting India was incredibly overwhelming, and one person described it as an assault to the senses. It's it's because it's it's vastly populated and it runs very differently than the West. It's not good or bad that it runs differently. It's just it's different. And I think that paired with jet lag and the heat, which can lead to dehydration or different foods that can lead to dysentery. This can all I mean, you know, this from traveling abroad. And, and so do I. It makes you a little more vulnerable and you become more susceptible to outside forces. You know, you're more in need of others to sort of help you or you might look outside of yourself a little bit more than you might. Yeah. And your podcast focuses mainly on India syndrome. And like you just mentioned, with India syndrome, people have been known to disappear. And you cover the stories of several Westerners who have, um, some who never resurfaced and some who did. But given that, can you describe what it tends to look like in people? How long does it last? Do people recover from India syndrome? And I'm wondering also, like, how common it really is. So before I answer this question, I do want to point out that Dr. Harshit, who's an Indian psychiatrist I interviewed in Delhi, said he'd never heard of the term India syndrome. And it sort of like stopped me in my tracks. It was like the second episode. And he thought it was a sensational term made up by the media to catch eyeballs. And he did witness people, though, who experienced these psychotic episodes in India, but he just didn't believe in the term India syndrome. So these psychotic episodes, they look different for every individual. But Charlie Marinelli, who I feature in the podcast, experienced it as insomnia, going into a trance-like state and forgetting lapses of time. There was some mania in there, um, delusional thinking. He believed the Dalai Lama was his father at one time, and it eventually led to his belief that he, Charlie, was the messiah. I want to add, there is speculation that Charlie was being drugged by a Baba or a holy man who he sought out for spiritual guidance. But according to Dr. Arshet, these psychotic episodes can be brought on by culture shock. So that's a yes. Um, they can also be brought on by the effects of an anti-malarial drug a person might be on when they travel. Or, this is interesting, meditating too intensely. So meditating too intensely too quickly, which can dredge up unresolved trauma, which presumably happened to John Lennon when he was meditating with the Maharishi. Uh, the Maharishi called it an iceberg. And when John Lennon was meditating, he hit this iceberg, hit old trauma. It came up. He didn't want to deal with it. And supposedly that's why he left Rishikesh early, which I think is pretty interesting. He didn't have a psychotic episode, but 
that can happen to some people who hit that trauma. And it happens from intense meditation. Okay. Okay. We're going to talk more about the meditative side of this. And I'm excited to talk about it because like one thing that I think is interesting to know is that I do not identify at all as a seeker or as someone who's like really interested in enlightenment. Like my travels have never been about that. And so I think that that might've shaped my experience of India because I went into it with a very like objective um, view of enlightenment and of spirituality in India. But I know that you feel differently. So I wanted to ask you, can you talk about your connection to India syndrome and also being a seeker? Sure. I can sort of take you back because it's interesting. Like I am a seeker and I think that's someone who's spiritually curious and is seeking answers. And in my case, had invested in this $4.5 trillion global wellness industry. And, you know, I bought into it all, the woo-woo stuff, the energy healing, psychic readings, all of that stuff. But I got a really up-close and personal view of the spiritual world working behind the scenes at a wellness conference. And I was turned off by it. And I wanted to start exploring the capitalism of spirituality and this thin line between healing and harm. You know, these gurus that we put on pedestals are human and following them blindly is dangerous. So, The same can be said of going to a country like India that's rooted in spirituality. Traveling there is not going to be a fast track toward enlightenment. I wanted to sort of do a podcast that explored this theme of the thin line between healing and harm and spirituality. And I brought in Jonathan Spallin, who is one of the the men who the media claims was a victim of India syndrome um, when he disappeared in Rishikesh in 2012. So I brought that in as one of the episodes of this broader conversation around spirituality. And the company I worked for was like, let's make this one episode into an entire series. Go down a rabbit hole and really start to ask, what's the cost of enlightenment? Did these men sacrifice themselves for this spiritual quest that they're on? So that's when I took this deep dive into India syndrome and Westerners who disappear over there. And it was an extremely intense process. And I I left there awakened in a very different way. And I wouldn't consider myself as much of a seeker anymore. Katie, as you know, travel for me doesn't always go according to plan. Oh, I am well aware. I've heard enough stories on this podcast to know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more as your go-to. And they've actually helped me out of a super scary situation before. When I ended up in hospital in Australia late at night, World Nomads provided me with emergency assistance so I could get the help I needed and carry on with my trip. World Nomads policies are simple and flexible. They cover over 150 adventure activities, including higher-risk activities like scuba diving and trekking. Benefits limit, conditions, and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get your travel insurance quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. I know we described it above, but I wanted to mention another definition, which comes from Regis Arrow, who you've mentioned already. Um, He's the former staff psychiatrist at the French consulate in Mumbai. And he says that he witnessed India syndrome a lot in patients. 
And he described it as delusional behavior, which hits people from developed Western countries who are looking for a cultural space that is pure and exotic, where values have been preserved. And I felt like this was a really interesting definition because there's so much to unpack in it. Mainly, I find it interesting that he describes Westerners as looking for a specific cultural space. And this is something you touch on in Astray. That's how you describe people um, as being seekers, like people who are in some ways looking for a cultural space that they're not finding in their home culture or in their home country. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it comes back to this idea of seeking. So a lot of seekers look outside themselves for answers. And I think that's sort of what he was speaking to is they're looking, they're coming to this exotic locale and looking for something that can bring them back to a neutral sort of spiritual enlightened place, a simpler place. What I think is really interesting is episode nine of Astray, the last episode, Susie Singh, who's an Indian therapist I was introduced to by my counterpart, she made a very interesting point. So after listening to Astray, she doesn't consider what I've been trying to understand through the podcast, this idea of India syndrome, as the focus. She's like, it should be renamed Seeker Syndrome because seekers, they're the ones they flock to South America for ayahuasca ceremonies or sweat lodges to experience the Native American ceremonial rituals. It's not India Syndrome. This can happen anywhere. After doing the show, I put less significance on the term India Syndrome as a psychosis brought on by India. And I think it's more case by case. I think actually like naming it India Syndrome There are some problematic undertones to it, but we'll touch on that. And I saw one of your previous podcasts was about colonialism. I mean, Mm -hmm, that's, (laughs) it's problematic in in many ways. And actually, we did an episode about cultural appropriation where we touched on the ayahuasca ceremonies and how there was like an appropriative element to those ceremonies, especially like with Westerners going to experience it and how like it it brings capitalism into these spiritual experiences. That's an older episode, Alpaca Pals. If you want to go back and listen, I think it's in season two. And I'll tell you like just a little behind the scenes that might be interesting for people. Like it's tough in podcasts because when you work for a company that's pretty big, when you're working on a platform like that, they want this sort of investigative true crime thing. Right. And they want that sensational thing that's going to get everyone listening But then there's also the ethics. There's a thin line between ethics and entertainment and some of these narrative podcasts. And that's what I was running into, especially being someone who is a filmmaker first and a journalist suddenly, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's like I wasn't I wasn't taught these things. And I think it's it's important that we do learn these things if we're going to be doing these investigative podcasts. And it's something that I've explored more as a podcaster. It's interesting you bring that up because I know right now this is like a pretty topical subject because I've been seeing a lot of like really good op-eds about uh, like crime and murder podcasts, especially following, I can't, what is her name? Gabby Petito, who I guess went missing. And it's opened up this conversation about like, why in crime podcasts are we just covering the story of missing white women when there are plenty of people of color who are going missing and not getting the same platform. And so I think it's an important conversation to have, especially in the podcasting world. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad that Payne Lindsay covered a Native American woman in his last podcast, because that's it's terrifying how many women are being are being kidnapped or are going missing in that 
population. And we need to be more aware of that for sure. And stop focusing on or glamorizing the killers. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, nice tangent. I love, I do love crime podcasts, unfortunately. Me too. too. (laughs) (laughs) I've been self-reflecting on this a little bit lately. Um, Anyways, in Astray, you touch on the fact that Westerners have actually for a long time been really drawn to India because of India's spirituality. I think the Beatles are like such an interesting example of that because they went in the 60s or 70s. But yeah, a lot of tourists go because they think they may find enlightenment there. In fact, like I know lots of people who've gone like for yoga retreats and such. How does this desire for enlightenment put people at risk of experiencing the mental health distress that um, is associated with India syndrome that you described? I think I go back to something that I, I mentioned earlier and that there's no quick fix to enlightenment. Spirituality is about doing the work and finding balance in your life. And if needed, finding a spiritual counselor or guidance through a vetted teacher. And the instances I covered in the podcast where people disappeared due to India syndrome, quote unquote, they were either taking something to an extreme, so they were looking for this quick fix to enlightenment, or it was due to something else entirely. Like in Ryan Chambers' case, it might have been his parents have sort of come to this conclusion that it was an anti-malarial drug that caused his psychotic episode that then led to his disappearance. But in the cases where this search for enlightenment was taken to an extreme, It led these Westerners like Justin Shetler Alexander, who I also talk about in Astray, to these false prophets and his false prophet or his sadhu that he sort of followed allegedly killed him. Or in Charlie's case, there was a Charlie Marinelli. There was a psychoactive drug that took him over the edge. So I guess my answer is that a desire for enlightenment is about living in the process of seeking and doing the work and not living for an extreme or a quick fix. And I just want to touch on anti-malarial drugs a little bit, because like for listeners who don't know, when you travel to like actually quite a few regions of the world, it's pretty common to take malarone. That's the one that I took. And it's just a daily pill that you take that is supposed to help prevent you catching malaria. And it is true that people do experience like very strange side effects from it. I remember waking up in my hostel room with two friends of mine when we were in Cambodia. And every morning we would tell each other about the weird dreams that we had had, which are often attributed to malarone. So that's like a pretty common experience to have. And usually when you're prescribed malarone, the doctor will tell you if your side effects like are becoming a bit too, yeah, too wild, you like you should stop taking it because it might not be good for you in the long run. Ilarium was the one specifically that we spoke about in Australia. And now that's off the market. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because like, Malarone, I mostly heard about people having strange dreams or they would have sleeplessness, but not to the point of insomnia. So I really love how in Australia you really carefully explore whether or not India syndrome is real, quote unquote. And there is some fair criticism of the term, arguing that India syndrome is largely Westerners or foreigners outside of India that are creating narratives of the unknown. And I'm curious what your position on this is. And it's probably hard to package this up into one straight answer because I think there's a lot of like nuance behind this. Um, but if you can, how would you sum up your thoughts on whether or not India syndrome is real? Well, it's interesting, this narrative of the unknown 
is what really got me into the story originally as a seeker. I was like, oh, there is this unknown, mysterious quality about it. But I have become so much more skeptical after Astray. And personally, I don't believe in India syndrome as this mysterious and dangerous thing that afflicts Westerners seeking enlightenment. And furthermore, I think the term India syndrome is extremely problematic. I think psychotic episodes can happen anywhere and are case by case. What I've also learned from doing the podcast as a seeker is not to be as trusting or open in general, you know, traveling abroad or not, and that all travelers need to prepare when they go to a foreign country and be aware of how culture shock might affect them. I also think, as Singh said in episode nine, gosh, I am just like tooting her horn today, but (laughs) she's great, um, that you should vet your teachers and never trust someone blindly who says they will enlighten or heal you. Also, never visit a guru alone and be cautious about eating or drinking anything they give you. Just be aware, you know, um, when you put yourself in these vulnerable situations and trust your gut or your sixth sense. That sounds very woo-woo, but it's true, especially in these countries halfway around the world. I actually, this is a bit of a tangent, but one thing that crossed my mind when I was listening to Astray, like one thing that I noticed was it seemed like it was mostly men that were falling prey to this supposed syndrome. And the story, I forget who it was, but one of them went off into the mountains with a guru. I found this so interesting because I thought about my own experience in India and thought to myself, as a woman, I would never have done that. Like there's no there's no way I would ever have left to go anywhere, even mildly remote with a stranger in a foreign country. Like it's not just India, it's like truly anywhere in the world. And I thought that was interesting because I felt like there was maybe a little bit of an aspect of privilege there wherein like men can feel much more security in making those kinds of choices and taking those kinds of risks. This is like really just a tangent. You don't have to like agree or disagree. I just wanted to bring it up because it's something that I found interesting in my own listening of the show. I think that's such a good point. And it's interesting because people kept sort of asking me why it was men. And I kept coming back to this idea of into the wild, you know, like these men wanting to go on these epic adventures. But you're right. There is this sort of privilege. And this is sort of a tangent. But to yes, Andrew, your story, one of my friends said that he went to this obscure place in Mexico and they left the he went with his girlfriend And they left the hotel to sort of go out and see the outside world that was hidden from this, like, all-inclusive hotel. Yeah. (laughs) And they went in the cab, and this cab driver was sort of taking them on these back roads. It was really scary to him. Like, they ended up going to this house where this woman was having a baby. Like, just weird stuff was happening. And he literally thought, this man is going to go behind some building and shoot us like any minute we sort of have to fall in line with this and when they finally got back to the hotel he was just a loopy fun he just wanted to show they wanted to experience his town so he let them experience his town it wasn't a threat but they felt this guy felt threatened and when they got back to the hotel the girlfriend said that feeling that you have that's what it feels like every day as a woman yeah there is a privilege that comes along with that. Absolutely. And I've noticed this, like, this is a trend that I've noticed just in, like, my own community of travelers. Like, the men that I know who travel have much more confidence when it comes to, like, taking risks and putting their trust in other people. Whereas I'd say, like, pretty much across the board, most of the women I know would not take the risk of, like, getting into a vehicle with someone they don't know or, like, going on a hike with a guru in the mountains of India 
yeah, it's it's just interesting how like I guess it's just socialization. Like women, we are socialized to understand that there is like more risk for us because of our gender identity. That was one thought I had listening to Astray. So I feel like I should be a bit delicate with this next question. And we've kind of touched on it already, but I wanted to bring it up because I think it's really important to validate people's mental health experiences. And from what you've described, like people who have had India syndrome really are experiencing a serious mental health crisis. And this kind of like harkens back to your point about um, it needing to be called seeker syndrome instead, because I'm wondering, like, do you think there's a possibility that this is a perceived disorder and the instances of it are actually just pointing to mental health disorders that could really affect anyone if they're put in an extreme situation? This is such an interesting and loaded question. I have some podcasting friends who do some pretty sensational podcasts and they get them made because they're sensational. And we had this conversation the other day and it was like, everything just comes down to mental health. If we had a better mental health system, then a lot of these things wouldn't be happening. (laughs) Um, And a lot of these stories wouldn't be told. And honestly, we're just telling stories about mental health and we're wrapping them in these true crime narratives, which is disturbing. But what is interesting, and we did touch on this, is that Charlie Marinelli and this other woman that I interviewed who experienced a similar psychotic episode to Charlie were both diagnosed as bipolar when they returned to the States after these episodes in India, but neither of them had underlying mental health issues before going to India. So yes, something might have been laying dormant and uh, something in India instigated it like culture shock or intense meditation or a psychoactive, but I don't know. Yeah, it is a loaded question. I know I just needed to ask it because it's something that like occurred to me because that does seem to be like the main experience that people have when they have this supposed syndrome is, is a mental health disorder. Ultimately, I want to talk about how this idea of India syndrome can be problematic and um, It seems inappropriate, ultimately, to attribute mental health experiences um, toward a country and its culture and its spirituality. I think that the term ultimately could create generalized assumptions about India as a whole. I found it really interesting how in one part of Australia you talked about how India, like the government, didn't want to talk about India syndrome because they understood that it created this sort of like negative idea of the country. So I know that in the course of making Astray, you've told me that you ultimately think like India syndrome isn't real. So what elements do you think are problematic about this, this term that is floating around? And do you think that ultimately, it's a term we should be doing away with? I think it is definitely a term that we should be doing away with. And it is problematic. It points fingers at a country And sort of creates this narrative of this underbelly of spirituality that, to be honest, in the beginning of Astray, I sort of was leaning into. And it was embarrassing, actually, that I leaned into it so much, I think, at the top. But I think every project gives you more and more clarity. We're actually developing this into a TV show, and I really hope to right my wrongs in the TV show. I'm so excited for that. I just know from like personal experience, because I know so many people who have gone to India citing the sort of spiritual like elements that you can experience there as their reason for wanting to go. And 
I'll admit, like, I've always been a bit critical of that because, like I said at the top of the show, I, I've never had, like, an interest in this stuff. So when I went to India, it was more so because I just wanted to see the Taj Mahal and, like, was interested in the culture. It was just a very, like, basic reasoning that I wanted to go. I never did, like, any of the yoga retreats. Like, I never took part in any of those experiences while I was there. Whereas, like, on the flip side, I know lots of people who went for that specifically. And so I think it's, like, a very normal thing for people especially from the west to want to experience when they go to india because like a lot of tourism does market that as like why you would go to india i find and so i love that astray is out there in the world now because people hopefully can listen to that and find sort of a middle ground of like yes experiencing and having those like spiritual and cultural experience but in balance with having an understanding of like respecting the culture and not looking at it like in a homogenous way, like understanding the nuance of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, hopefully people see in me this sort of evolution of a seeker and also with the guests just are able to sort of hear those stories that can be warning tales and be able to plan their trips around what might cause some issues, you know. I think it's like, it kind of goes back to a lot. We've often said this on the show. We've talked a lot about, you know, how you should prepare yourself for travel and the importance of decentering yourself as a tourist, which means thinking about, yes, yourself, but thinking about how your visit is impacting the people and the culture and the environment around you. And I think at its core is on the show, we say a lot, we really believe that it's important with travel to take time to self-reflect. And I think that that is something that can help with this. Like if you are self-reflecting often as you're traveling, you can catch yourself when you're starting to feel a little unwell, for example. Like I know that I often felt overwhelmed in India and my partner and I would take days and just sleep and we would just stay in our hotel room in our quiet quiet, cozy spot and just rest. And it's really important to do that, I think. But people forget about how important self-care is when you're traveling still. It's not all just like vacation and fun. We still need to take care of ourselves. It's so true. And I would say the same thing around being a seeker and looking for these spiritual outlets, like being able to trust yourself more and listen to yourself more and take those moments to do those gut checks or you said rebalance, I think those moments are so important because they can help guide you away from something that might be dangerous and towards something that might be pretty euphoric or an amazing experience. So I think being able to trust yourself first is the number one thing. I also wanted to ask, I'm not sure if you've been to India. Have you? We were supposed to go for this trip and COVID happened. Yeah. Well, <laughs> presumably, I honestly, we had a trip booked to India as well for April 2020, which obviously did not happen. So eventually we will rebook. We feel like we need to wait like a quite a while still because we want to make sure things are much better there before we go. Um, but I'm sure you'll get to go eventually. And when you do, I wanted to ask, like, what, what learnings have you taken from making a stray for your own future travels to India? I actually wrote down notes on this because I think I learned a lot from from doing this podcast. So 
I think, you know, having someone be accountable to where you are when you're traveling. So this is this idea of preparation that you speak to. Having a buddy system, so traveling with someone if you can. Uh, vetting teachers and hotels and hostels before you go. And if possible, finding someone through family or friends who might live where you're traveling so you can get their advice on things and have them as a point person if anything sort of goes off. And I think, too, just speaking back to this idea of being a seeker, until the spiritual industry becomes regulated in the way that therapy, you know, was, it's hard to know what teachers or practices to trust. So like we said earlier, being able to trust yourself more, um, even though that's a difficult practice, especially when you're going through hard transitions in life and you just want answers. But if you can, even when seeking answers, trust yourself and go into everything with some skepticism No one has the magic pill or the quick fix or all the answers. No country is going to provide enlightenment. And we're all just human figuring out as we go. That's such a great point. And actually, like, just to follow up on that, even the concept of being able to, like, fly to another country and look for answers is such a privileged thing to be able to do. And sometimes I wonder, like, what do we need to do to be able to find those answers at home if we don't have access to that kind of privilege? I'm going to tell you the most embarrassing story, but it's it's on your point. So I went to Bali to sort of do my own spiritual quest. And I went, I loved Eat, Pray, Love. This is so basic. And I did. <laughs> I went to the person that Elizabeth Gilbert went to for her answers. Like, he was exactly... So I went to him and I was sitting there like, and he had like the E Pray Love book up. It was like, you know, and he just looked at me and he goes, you are so lucky. You live in the West. You are a blonde woman, a blonde white woman. You have so much more privilege than I do. Why are you here asking me questions? Wow. And I was like, holy shit. But still, the seeker was like, let me know more. But it put (laughs) things in perspective. And I was like, why am I looking outside myself for the answers when when I'm living a pretty good life and I can trust myself a little bit more? That's what I think he was trying to say. And then I was like, do you think I'm similar to Elizabeth Gilbert? (laughs) I didn't say (laughs) So embarrassing. Just a <laughs> that little experience, insight. like it really nails what I was trying to say, though. It's, and it's like it's true. It's like a lot of the people that are seeking are people that have like access to a life that so many people on this planet like don't have or and will never have. And it, I guess, it kind of makes me sad that like even when you have that much privilege, a lot of people feel like there's something missing in their life or that they're looking for something. I guess. The issues with America. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Caroline. It's been so awesome to unpack this with you. And I hope everyone will go and listen to Astray because it really is a fantastic listen. I binged it. Where can people find you? So you can find me um, on my website at carolineslaughter.com or Instagram at cslaughters. And yeah, Astray, you can find it anywhere um, that you listen to podcasts. And when can we expect the TV show? Oh my gosh, I'm working on all of that right now. So this is the tagline that my executive producer came up with. Okay, the tagline for Astray. There's a thin line between awoken and broken. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and are there any fun projects coming up? Anything you're working on that you can tell us about? 
I'm actually working on a cool new podcast called Tom Slick Mystery Hunter, and it's produced by School of Humans and iHeartRadio, who I worked with um, on Astray. And it's probably about the most interesting man who ever lived. Due to time, we can only cover his five-year trek to find the Yeti in the Himalayas, but there's so much more, and Andy Samberg is playing Slick. (gasps) You're literally living my dream life. I just want to make podcasts about such interesting topics like this. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. Bye.